Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Abdul Rahman Azam. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Assalamu alaikum to you. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Dr. Uh, Abdul Rahman has a doctorate in history from Oxford University and worked at the Qatar Foundation for 10 years on several uh, landmark cultural projects. Recently, he has worked on the uh, Islamic Arts Biennial held in Jeddah. Now, he is the author of this book, Saladin, The Triumph of the Sunni Revival, um, and his very last, most recent book is entitled The Other Exile, which perhaps we can discuss later. But um, this book is marvellous. I've, I've read it from cover to cover. And um, I think um, you, if I may say so, that embarrassing, you have a, a great gift for historical narrative that really brings the reader into the world of Saladin, which is, what, over 800 years ago now. Um, so perhaps we can just begin um, with a very simple simple seeming question who was Saladin as an historical individual now the other dimensions to him his later fame as, as a hero and so on but what who was he what was his great goal or aim in life and also if I may just tack another question on what is his full name in Arabic because it's not Saladin is it there's a slightly grander full Arabic name that he has yes well first of all thank you so much for asking me to speak on really a wonderful subject. Uh, Saladin or Salah al-Din, I mean, if I use the words interchangeably, there's no meaning, you know, there's no sort of hidden significance. It's, in fact, it's a testimony to his fame and his, um, that the word Salah al-Din has become Saladin. Yusuf is his name. Yusuf, his father's called Najm al-Din. He was an Ayyubi. So Yusuf Najm al-Din ibn Ayyub ibn uh, um, forgotten his grandfather's name, but um, he came from Tikrit in northern Iraq. And this right. is a significant point because we'll come back to that, I'm sure, in our debates. Mm. And what was fascinating about him is everyone knows, in fact, the, probably the only thing they know about Saladin, other than his, of course, his famous capture of um, Jerusalem, is that he was mm. Kurdish. He was Kurdish? He was Kurd. Well, he wasn't actually Arab. He wasn't an Arab in that sense. He was a Kurd. He was a Kurd. And this mm. has become a big dispute because after his fame and after his great glory, uh, the Arabs tried to claim them by, and there's a whole debate which often tends to happen online, unfortunately, because it's not a serious one, in which they argue in which in that Salah al-Din was actually an Arab, mm -hmm. and that's because you know there's this kind of you know it's funny enough even today you look at the remnants of these disputes you know the Turks and the Kurds and Arabs and the Turks and so forth, and mm -hmm. it's very much the same issues. He was a Kurd at a time when the Turks were mainly in power, military control of the area was largely under Turkish hands. He grew up in a um, military background. He was a military, what, what is known, I guess, a warlord. He came mm -hmm. from Tikrit. And because of the movement of his families and his father, he ended up growing up in initially Baalbek in Lebanon, and then, of course, mainly in Damascus. Right. 
So the first thing to say really about him, you know, before we really get into it, is that he was Kurdish by origin. His loyalty was to the Kurds. He spoke Kurdish, of course. He identified himself as a Kurd. But, you know, recently, I'll tell you a very quick anecdote. Recently, I was at this dinner party and I was talking to, I met this Kurdish Iraqi gentleman. And of course, you know, if you, you meet somebody like that and I write a book on Salah al-Din, you tend to talk about that. Sure. And um, I was quite surprised by his attitude, but it wasn't the first time I heard it, but he put it in a very sort of eloquent and forceful manner, which is, oh, Salah al-Din really betrayed the Kurds. Wow. Because he had a choice. He could have somehow built a Kurdish empire, Kurdish dynasty, but instead all his life, he devoted it, as we know, to protecting the Muslim Ummah and Islamic world, and you know, mainly in Egypt and Syria. And I found that very strange because there is this sense among certain Kurds um, that somehow he betrayed the Kurdish cause. Mm. Now, to me, this, of course, is historically makes no sense whatsoever. If he spoken to Salah al-Din somehow, you brought him here and asked him this question. Mm he would have been completely bemused by that question. He would not really have understood what you meant by mm. the Kurdish, Kurdish thing. He was very proud of being a Kurd. He spoke Kurdish. He also spoke Turkish and he spoke Arabic because he was brought up in Damascus, as you can imagine. His Arabic would have been very proficient. Um, he wasn't a great scholar, as we might touch on, but he surrounded himself. He was intelligent and pious and humble enough to surround mm. himself by great scholars. And we're going to be talking about that maybe later. But the bottom line, he was a man who grew up in the camp of uh, one of the great warriors at that time, uh, Nuruddin, Nuruddin ibn Zengi, who was one of the, who was really the man who was trying to unite Syria. And don't forget that Salah al-Din was born, what, 30, 40 years after the first crusade. So he was born at a time when Jerusalem had fallen to the crusades. He was at a time when the Muslim world was uh, extremely fragmented. Mm. Uh, he would have been in, or in his teens when in uh, 1148 the second crusade came very close to capturing uh, Damascus. They yeah, yeah. Sorry, just interrupt. There's the first date we've got. So 1148. So do we know what date in the common era he was born in? Do we have a date of birth? A year common or year, I'm afraid not. But in the uh, he was born in 36, 1136. So he would have been 12 or so when um, the, 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 the Damascus besieged in the second crusade. So he grew up in a time when the Muslim world was under enormous uh, threat. Jerusalem mm -hmm. at all, Damascus on the Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Siege, there was a siege of Aleppo, and there was a constant, constant attempt to undermine and capture Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, so he would have grown up in that world. He rose, he became, his father served, uh, his father and his uncle. His uncle was a very famous man called Shirku, and his father, Najmuddin, was a very wise statesman. They both served uh, Nuruddin in his camp. And that's where Salah al-Din really took his first steps as a, as a, as a young uh, warrior, as a military warlord, as a lieutenant, one could say, in Nuruddin's camp, until destiny took over and uh, he found fame, largely when he went to Egypt. Yes. 
And, and Egypt, of course, then wasn't a Sunni country, uh, at least in terms of the the caliphate there, the rulership. It was, uh, what was it? It was a, a Fatima. It was a, a Shia. Yes. Egypt is uh, Egypt for 200 years was under Fatimid rule, which was mm. the Fatimids were an Ismaili uh, Shiaism. Shia. Mm. And as most people might know, but then maybe others may be surprised to know that um, the Azhar, the great institution, mm. which is now the great Sunni institution, was actually established by the Fatimids for um, Ismaili, just propagate Ismaili. You know, I didn't know until I read your book, to be honest. I, I didn't know that. I always thought this great bastion of Sunni orthodoxy in Egypt uh, had always been the great bastion of Sunni orthodoxy. But no, it was actually founded by, well, we don't go into the polemics about who they were, but they're not usually recognized as. Um, no, they, were, they, were, they were Fatimid Ismailis, and their aim was to topple the Sunni caliph in Baghdad. It was very clear and to spread the Ismaili um, message across the Muslim world. Mm. And there was this enormous struggle. Yeah. between Baghdad with the caliph and at that time the caliphate had become politically extremely weak mm -hmm. the, the caliph had no money he had no men to defend himself but he had a certain legitimacy he had a certain um, cloak of legitimacy mm -hmm. and in that sense uh, all the military warlords that were emerging that had started to emerge before Salah al-Din most famously the Seljuks and then other um, warlords who came always sought this kind of legitimacy from the caliph. So they needed the caliph because they knew that they could not act without being seen as somehow Islamically legitimate. So the struggle between Baghdad, where the Sunni caliph was, and Egypt, which was the emerging power, which was where the Fatimid Ismailis were, was very much at the heart of Salah din's youth. Mm. And one of the main uh, attempts by Nur al-Din and by the Sunni orthodoxy, if one can call them Sunni orthodoxy, although it was not really organized in that sense, was to bring Egypt back into the fold of Sunni Islam. And uh, it was Salah al-Din's uh, fate to do so. He was sent to Egypt by Nur al-Din when Egypt was about to fall to the uh, Franks because the Franks and the Crusaders understood that to capture Egypt, and don't forget Egypt's wealth was enormous, absolutely enormous when it came to yeah food and men and, 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 and the natural resources and it was the bread basket for them. So, yeah. they, so yeah. they, you know, the whole of Syria uh, could, did not measure up, of course, to the wealth of Egypt. Mm. And so there was a struggle of who could control Egypt. Mm. And it was very much like moving pieces on a chess set. It was very clear that once, as, as I'll just to briefly backtrack, mm. you know, First Crusade, the Crusaders swept across the Muslim world, which was extremely fragmented at that time. It was split between, as I mentioned, the Ismailis in um, Egypt, between the Sunnis who were fragmented in Baghdad, and there were other Shia, of course, scattered across Syria, mainly in Aleppo and other places. And there was a whole theological, and there was a kind of disputes and arguments and so forth. This is the standard argument that we, we, we come to know, and that's one of the reasons why Jerusalem fell, very easily is because the Muslims were not keeping an eye on it. They were perhaps not as attuned to the threat that was coming. And they didn't really understand what was happening. They mixed up. They didn't really understand the Crusades. They thought these were just another Western invading party that would come and go. Mm. But they didn't really understand. But they very quickly figured it out. And there were some people like Asulami who quite early on in his Kitab al-Jihad understood the threat. But really between 1098 you know, the turn of the century when Jerusalem fell, 
it took about 20 to 30 years for the Muslims to really begin to understand, maybe not until the 1130s and 40s, with the emergence of Nur al-Din, that what has come to be known as the counter-jihad sort of emerges, which is, you know... Okay, can I just, sorry to interrupt, just pause you there. You use the term Franks, which I've learned, I had to look this up, is pretty much synonymous with crusaders, isn't it? But 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 Franks can have a more limited set meaning to do with yes. not the French so much, but kind of the Western Europeans, the French, the Germans. But it is basically synonymous, it's interchangeable, is it not it's, with the crusade word crusader? To a large extent, yes. I mean, they did not know who these people were. They knew they were uh, Christian. They knew that they were foreigners. And But don't forget, there was a very sizable Christian minority that was living in the Muslim world at that time. Mm. But they were not seen as Franks, French, which were seen as somehow foreign. They were mm. unexpected. They were... Um, and one of the things we can't talk about, of course, is how the Muslims viewed them. And, you know, nowadays we live in a world where post-colonialism and post, you know, all that what's happened is the perception of the other. And it's so fascinating to see how the Muslims did not really understand the French who are coming. And it took them a while to figure out that these people were coming with an ideology and were coming to stay and were coming to take over land, especially Jerusalem. And of course, what emerges later on is that there is actually a, a very big divide between the Christians, the Crusaders who have come from the West, and the Christians who actually lived with the Muslims. Mm -hmm. Because the Christians who lived with the Muslims had been living with the Muslims for hundreds of years yeah. and had become very much accustomed to their social habits and mores to the point where it was very hard to differentiate between the two. As yeah. I assume they spoke Arabic. The, the, the Christians uh, spoke Arabic. Arabic they dressed in the same way, they yeah. ate the same food. Yeah. Um, and there's daily habits in the same way that today, if you travel to certain Arab countries, you, you cannot tell a Muslim from a Christian because of these social customs are so similar. They spoke the same language, they acted in the same way. Yeah. The Crusades, the French who were coming, were different. Yes, they were. Uh, they viewed. Uh, they were viewed themselves as orthodox, of course, and they viewed heresy in different ways. And to a large extent, don't forget. They turned their anger and their violence not just against, against the Muslims, but also against the Jews who were there. And they massacred many, many Jews. And of course, they also found many of the Christians there as heretics. Mm. And one of the most famous crusades, the, they never actually got beyond Constantinople because by the time they got to Constantinople, there was a big massacre which took place because really the dispute then was between different sects and churches of Christianity. So it was very much a crusade, not just against Muslims as such. It was, of course, to, to, re to protect the Holy Lands, to recapture the Holy Lands, whatever their argument was. Mm -hmm. But it was also a kind of anti-heretical movement, which included many of the Christians who had been living with the Muslims. And yeah. it took a while for the Muslims to figure this out. It wasn't that clear from the start with. Because there was the Inquisition going on in Europe at that, that time, of course, in, in what we call France and Spain, what we call Portugal today, where there was a big a big campaign against Jews and against uh, unorthodox, you know, Christians, the Cathars in, in southern France and so on. So that this was part of a, a militant movement to push back against heresy and, you know, th through the Inquisition. And this was militarized with one of the popes who sent a the crusaders, but it was all part of this inquisition, wasn't it? It wasn't just like a random military expedition. Yeah, yeah, the inquisition happened a bit later, a couple of hundred years later. But yes, you're absolutely right, because don't forget that while this was happening with, um, you know, 1100, 1200, the crusades, mm. um, the same battles were being fought out in Spain and in Iberia. 
peninsula yeah. in Spain and yeah. Portugal, where the, the idea of the Reconquista was taking place. Right. Yeah. And this is where you had uh, the famous kings, uh, Fernando, and then you had, of course, Alfonso Enriquez of Portugal, yeah. who uh, were besieging the Muslim cities, of course, the most famous one, Toledo in 1085, and then Lisbon, mm. and so forth. And these were the, so while the Christians were pushing the Muslims in Palestine and Syria, they were also pushing them in Spain and Portugal. So you're absolutely right. It was very much um, a universal movement. The Inquisition comes later, and of course the Inquisition turns against itself and eats its own children, as we know, they tend mm. to do by turning inwards, mm. um, because they would not accept the, the Jews who converted, who became new Christians. That's a very terrible period in history. Mm. Now, you, you subtitled your book, uh, Saladin, The Triumph of the Sunni Revival, and there's an interesting angle, uh, one that I wasn't aware of. So. Saladin wasn't just a great uh, 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 person who liberated uh, Jerusalem, of course. He didn't, but we'll come to his great nemesis, the English king Richard the Lionheart, shortly, perhaps. But he also he was a very committed Sunni Muslim, and he he built madrasas. He he wants to revive learning and the administrations of the of the empire. And could you perhaps just elaborate a bit of the Sunni revival dimension to to your history of Saladin's life? The first thing to say about the Sunni revival is, of course, it's a label which um, one cannot hold on to too firmly. It was hardly, it was very, you know, it was an idea which spread. Uh, one, one, you know, whether they recognize it as a revival or not, but this come, it's come to be known as Sunni revival thanks to writings of Macadisi and so forth. So we'll use that label, uh, even though, in fact, it doesn't quite accurately reflect what was happening. But there was for sure there was something happening. And the question is what was happening and how did Salah al-Din mm. tune into what was happening? And I think to a large extent, the reason I wrote this book is because so many books have been written about the military accomplishments. And of course, as you said, we cannot talk about Salah al-Din without talking about the famous Richard Coeur de Lyon and mm. the Third Crusade and you know the Jerusalem and Acre and all that. But for me, what was really interesting and what has not been written about, and I thought was far more interesting was the intellectual world in which Salah al-Din grew mm. up. <clears throat> and it's a more complex one, so much more subtle argument, but it is by far more profound. And it's of course one that if one were to draw any parallels, one can look towards that in a much more dynamic way than you know the battles themselves and the whole Richard thing. So the first thing to say about that was that the world was changing and new ideas were emerging. And Salah al-Din, so we need to place again within a so chronological historical framework so that we understand. Mm. As we said, Salah al-Din was born uh, about 30 years or so before Salah al-Din was born in Baghdad, a movement really started emerging. And the two men behind this, again, I'm talking in a very general sense, and please don't, don't you know, history is not that, as you know, that specific. When I say two men, of course, there are many people, the movements are back and forth. But if one were to put some flag posts, then we need to turn our attention to the great uh, Seljuk vizier, Nizam al-Mulk, who was really somebody who understood the direction that Islam was heading towards and understood the urgency that was needed to able to articulate an Islamic ideology and movement which was generous enough to accommodate the different strands of thought whereas at the same time, orthodox to protect any sort of heretical, against any heretical movements. Mm. So, so you say in the book that that, that, that conception of 
Sunni orthodoxy actually included moderate Shia views as well, which implies, though you didn't say it, excluding non-moderate Shia views. You didn't state that, I don't think, in the book, but that's the implication. So it's actually quite a generous, if I can use that word, yes. Sunni orthodoxy that includes moderate Shia. And, and, the, and of course, our definition. Yeah, and of course, Nizamul Mulk was a politician, he was a statesman, he was a diplomat, he understood the political implications of creating something which on which the new Islamic movements could base themselves on. Mm. But of course, he himself was not a theologian or thinker, and so one of his most famous uh, professors, the, the man, of course, that we owe a huge debt of gratitude to, was Al-Ghazali. Mm. And I don't think we can understand modern Islam without understanding Ghazali and the great debt that every Muslim owes to Ghazali. And Ghazali and Nizam al-Mulk worked really very closely together, one as a politician, as a statesman, as a diplomat, dealing with realpolitik, and somebody, Ghazali, who really created uh, the firmament of the Muslim world that we know together. And But as he said, it was a very generous one because he understood that one, some people had mystical leanings, some people had philosophical leanings, some you know, preferred to go down the theological route, some preferred to go down the fiqh route. Whereas Islam, it was a time when the Muslims were tearing themselves to pieces, between, especially between the madhabs, and in Baghdad at that time was time when the Hanbalis and the Shafi'is were at loggerheads, and there was a lot of disputes, and in theological terms, the Ash'aris were just disputing, and there was a lot of violence, and it was extremely unstable. And of course, it was the time, as I mentioned earlier, when the Fatimid Ismailis were emerging. Mm. So, you know, in all this, the Sunni Muslims started getting their act together and started thinking, we've got to develop an Islam which includes the different strands of thought, including, as I mentioned, moderate Shiism, and people who followed what was known or accepted by Ijma'at consensus as the orthodoxy, mm. which eventually, eventually, has come to mean a, you follow a madhab, often Shafi'i, Ghazali was a Shafi'i, by the way, Salahuddin was Shafi'i, and so forth. Um, you had some Ash'ari leanings, you had some Sufi leanings through following a sheikh in a kind of either passive or less passive manner, but you accepted other points. So this argument, and I know that's something that you've raised many times on your theology blogs, you know, this, the famous dispute between you know, Abiros, Ibn Rushd, and Ghazali and Ghazali somehow turned against philosophy. This is not, of course, cannot be true because the philosophy has an important role to play in Islam as mm. the Sufism, as this fiqh, as this theology, as kalam, and so forth. So what started to emerge very, very slowly and imperceptibly was this kind of new orthodoxy. Mm. Now, if it would have it would have been very hard to define and would have been almost very hard to capture had it not been for Nizam al-Mulk. Because what he understood, either instinctively or consciously, was that it needed a vehicle. The Sunni movement needed a vehicle. And the vehicle that emerged at that time was, of course, the madrasas. The madrasa. So, just for the uninitiated, what does the word madrasa mean? I, I, I'm, could you just very briefly and simply explain what this concept is? Today madrasa, today madrasa means, of course, something which quite, didn't quite mean then. Today, of course, madrasa means schools and so forth. In those days, the madrasa was a school of law. You studied right. Islamic law. Now, when I say you went and studied Islamic law, there was no real curriculum to study with, but no, more or less you went and studied under a teacher uh, or several teachers. You, you know, there was an ijazah, so you read the manuscript, you read the book with the teacher, you learned from them. 
and you travel the Muslim world from madrasa to madrasa to pick up knowledge, and of course also to be part of hadith transmission, which was fundamentally important. Mm. But the madrasas initially started, I mean, many books have been written about it. I think Bulyat's book, The Patricians of Nishapur, is very important. It shows that the even started quite east. But it was Nizam al-Mulk who started really institutionalizing the concept of the madrasa. And the most famous ones, of course, that he built were the Nizamiya in Baghdad. And, of course, it began to spread then towards uh, into Syria and then ultimately into Egypt. So although madrasas, strictly speaking, were places where one went to study Islamic law, the actual role they, could, they played as they, as they spread was far more profound than perhaps initially envisaged by Nizam al-Mulk. Mm -hmm. They played a very important social role in that people met, they discussed ideas, they, they, there was intermarriage, there was business happening there. So it became like a focal point for people but it also transformed the ulama. Before the madrasas, mainly the ulama were often practicing what I call secular professions. They had a job, they had, and then they would come to the market and they would give a fatwa. But now the appointment of professors in the madrasas gave them a professional position. Now, this was not done lightly, and many, many of the scholars refused to accept money because they somehow felt that accepting money from this, from the ruler, corrupted their judgment. It was a valid concern, of course, because if, if someone pays your wages, then you're not going to uh, bite the hand that feeds you, are you, by criticizing the rulers? Human nature. Having said that, as we see in the book, and we can talk about it, there was a huge amount of, uh, there was this famous man called Najmuddin al-Khabushani, who was one of the professors in one of the Salahuddin madrasas in Egypt, yeah. who brilliantly stood up to Salahuddin and actually criticized yeah. them and yeah. because the people and the people often look to the ulama and uh, to protect their own interests and yeah. of course human nature being what it is most a lot of people just took the money and passed the fatwas that the ruler wanted but in many many cases they actually stood up to uh, Salahuddin and said but this is not this is against sharia you cannot do this so but the other point that the madrasas did which i think really is the most important point to to know is that as these slowly, as the, and I, again, I use the word graduation because there's no real graduation ceremony or anything, but as these scholars, as these ulama went to the madrasas and started come emerging from madrasas, mm. they started becoming almost rubber stamped by a certain education. Now, what happened was these people started assuming positions of government and administration as well. Right. So what, and this starts emerging really when the madrasas reach Syria with the figurehead of Nuruddin, who was a remarkable, a remarkable man. And as he started building madrasas in Aleppo and in Damascus, where he ruled, uh, he started gathering around him people who were madrasa trained, but could also work in ad administration. And it's this what I call this pincer movement, which between the ulama who started assuming positions of administration, which really secured the, Sufi, the Sunni revival, as one, if one can call it. And now you see this really emerging with Salah al-Din, where the, most people who, who were around him, most people who advised him, and most people who really gave him counsel, both on, not just on religious affairs, but also on practical administrative taxation affairs, even military affairs, were madrasa trained. Hmm. So if one looks at over a period of 30, 40, 50, 60 years between Nizam al-Mulk, Ghazali dies, as we know, famously in 1111, 
Salah Adin born in 1136, so there's a 20-year gap. And if I may, just to divert slightly and talk about another incredible figure who, of course, was alive at that time, was Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. Al-Jilani, yes. Al-Jilani yes. was a man who's a contemporary of Salah din And here we have... And he's, he's Hanbali, I think. He wasn't uh, Shafi like uh, Salah Hanbali, He went to Baghdad, yes. And he became, of course, he initially was a Hanbali scholar. And then he became, um, uh, of course, he had many, many disciples then at that point. And I don't think once he settled in Baghdad, he didn't leave. Of course, he came from Jilan. And once he settled in Baghdad, I don't think he left it. Uh, and he had thousands upon thousands of disciples. He was really the the um, the, the main yeah, pillar. Right, right today. That's how I heard of him because he's still um, his books are still on sale in bookshops. Absolutely, today. not just his books. You'll find that he's got his disciples as remain as powerful as everything. You know, the Jilan. So we have this figure, Abdul Qadir Jilani, who was a great scholar, who was a great Sufi sheikh, living in Baghdad, who was a contemporary of Salah din and they never met. Salah din never went to Baghdad, and Jilani didn't come and meet Salah din He Salah din would have been, uh, Jilani died in 1160-something, so Salah din would have been 30 years old. So they, they, they would have known, heard of each other, of course they knew each other. Mm -hmm. And these were, if I would say, the two main most important people in the Muslim world at that time, the greatest mm -hmm. Sultan, Salah din and Abdul Qadir Jilani, who really followed from Al-Ghazali as being the main thinker of the Muslim world, the great mm -hmm. Sheikh. Mm. Now, in my book, I start looking very carefully at. That's the book. <laughs> but that's, that's, this is actually a, a, a near contemporary portrait, allegedly, of Saladin. And uh, looking very, very Asian, actually, looking very quite Oriental in this. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, I'm not quite sure. I mean, the, 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 in the um, this is a, a slightly uh, detour here, but in the. Um, that amazing um, depiction of Saladin in the Kingdom of Heaven in this movie by Ridley Scott, uh, the actor who plays him, there's a Syrian guy called yes. Gassad Massoud, who looks nothing like him. He <laughs> was Kurdish. <laughs> if I just finish this point, because I think it's important. Oh, yeah. What you find was that this incredible, a lot of the disciples of Jelani, a lot of the students of Jelani, ended up working and advising Salah din so you get very great scholars like the great Hanbali scholar Muafaqiddin Ibn Qudama. You get Ibn Abi Asrun, who was a chief judge. You get many, many of the um, scholars and administrators of Salah din And I trace their, you know, their sort of education, their spiritual disciplineship and training back to Al Jilani in Baghdad. So what what really was emerging when one talks about the Sunni revival was a very fluid movement of ideas of thinking, of writing, of travel. And somehow it was inspiring the the crusades, the fight against the crusades. Mm. Now, whether this could have happened without the madrasas being built is an argument because when Salah had needed people, he turned to the madrasas. When he needed legal advice, he turned to the madrasas. When he needed the so if this institution had not existed, <laughs> one wonders where these people would have gathered. Mm. And yeah. of course, in my book I argue that although we Salah had is most famous for his battles, and we'll touch upon them. It was actually his contribution to the madrasas. He's the one who really introduced madrasas into Egypt. Before him, there were only a few in Alexandria, which had remained a Sunni bastion, but he is the one who really built the madrasas. And from those madrasas, thousands upon thousands of graduates emerged who eventually would assume positions of leadership within the Muslim world. Mm. And they were the ones who really stood up against the Crusades, and they were the ones who advised and um, 
often pushed Salah al-Din. And one of the most arguments about Salah al-Din, I'm sure we're going to be talking about it, is the myth or the legend of Salah al-Din, that today we live in a world where almost everybody knows the name Salah al-Din Saladin. I would argue that perhaps if one put aside the companions of the Prophet, Salam, then uh, maybe apart from Rumi, the name Salah al-Din is probably the most famous uh, Muslim name there is now. And if you ask people why Salah al-Din is so famous, they will probably argue that. They will say, as I said earlier, that he was Kurdish and he captured Jerusalem, and then they will talk about his chivalry and his virtues, which yes, can... character, which we'll, we'll come to, because the man himself, uh, his character, uh, seems to have been admired universally by his friends and his but, enemies alike. And we'll come, we'll come to I just want that, but the point to make is that if you were to ask them, then name me another figure. I mean, Salah did not capture Jerusalem single-handedly, <laughs> and yet, and the people would struggle to name people who actually were with Salah who were his generals. You know, his famous nephew, Taqiyuddin, there were so many people around him, his brother, all the people who advised him, all the sh people around him. And of course, the three most famous ones was his advisor, a man called Al-Qadi Al-Fadl. He was an absolutely genius, his vizier, if one can call it that, mm -hmm. really pushed him. He had Imaduddin al-Sfahani, of course, and the third one is Ibn Shaddad, his biographers. Mm. Now, the fascinating thing about Ibn Shaddad and Isfahani is they were both trained in the Nizamiya Madrasa in Baghdad. So one traces goes back to Baghdad. There's always this movement back from Baghdad, mm -hmm. which from which the main Sunnis think it was emerging. So one of the purposes of writing this book was to populate it and to show that there were other figures who were actually inspired by the same ideology that Salah Hadim was inspired. Mm. The jihad, the counter crusade, did not emerge single-handedly, nor was it in one person. And it is in a way a reflection of the fact that people know nobody but Salah Hadim. Yeah. which actually is, shows how shallow our thinking is of Salah al-Din. What made Salah al-Din great, and we will talk about it now, apart from his chivalry, was the age of greatness in which Salah al-Din lived. Mm -hmm. Some great, great men around him. And that's why Islam managed to do what it did. But mm -hmm. going back to the point about Salah al-Din's virtues, they're absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, when you read about them, first of all, you think this must be coming out from you know Thousand and One Nights or you know, the Arabian Fables yeah. and so forth. He was remarkably chivalrous. He was remarkably virtuous. Yes. He had qualities um, which managed to unite the Muslims. And he started off with a handicap, as we know. He was a Kurd at a time when Kurds were not accepted. And for a Kurd to emerge and rise to avenge, at one point, he controlled Egypt. His power extended to Yemen. He controlled the Hejaz, which meant he had the power over Mecca and Medina. He controlled Syria and he controlled Iraq, the northern parts of Iraq. One person. Hmm. Now, we can. How did he do it? This is one of the main you know, discussion points and how long it took him to take it on, while at the same time he was fighting the Crusades. Hmm. Now, what is remarkable about Salah al-Din is that he managed to do this and he managed to unite all these Muslim lands without shedding any blood. Okay. Have... Sorry, can I point? just want to, if I may, just read a paragraph from yeah, your book, um, which gives uh, perhaps an extraordinary insight into the character of the man himself, the personal character. And it's on, <coughs> excuse me, page 206, and you write the following. Um, the fighting, however, did offer glimpses of Saladin's character. On one occasion, a number of Frankish prisoners, Frankish is another word for crusaders a number of crusader prisoners were captured 
and his younger sons asked to be allowed to kill them. But Saladin refused, lest they should acquire a taste for blood. I'm not sure what a taste of blood is. I don't want to go there. But anyway, on another occasion, and this is really touching, I think, a three-month-old baby was stolen from the Frankish camp. And such was Saladin's reputation. The Franks advised the mother to go and plead with Saladin, for they informed her he was a merciful man. This is the Crusaders informing her that Saladin was a merciful man. She was brought to him by his guards, and he quickly found out that the baby had been sold in the slave market. He then ordered that the baby should be bought, bought back, and he returned it to the mother. Then he ordered a horse to be brought to escort her back to the Frankish camp. This is the enemy camp. So he was actively showing compassion and mercy to a mother and the mother's child in ways which way, way, way beyond the call of duty. And, and this is just a, a fascinating vignette and insight into the man. And this is characteristic. This is not an exceptional incident. It's characteristic of the man. And you can see how a legend was born from this. Legend was born because of that. And the reason he became so famous in the West and Salah al-Din became Saladin mm. is because as the, um, the Crusaders returned, they returned with stories that they had seen, like this one you mentioned. There was some many other ones. There was the famous one where in one of the battles between him and Richard, Richard's horse was slain and the king of England fell on the ground. And this, of course, to capture the king in battle would have ended everything. But uh, Salah al-Din uh, sent him two horses because he said it's not befitting that the king should fight not on horseback. He had chivalry. But what is incredible about Salah al-Din was, of course, it goes without saying, his virtues and chivalry were incredible. And, and it's in a way, that is one of the reasons why he united the Muslim world. And I'll come back to that later on. Mm-hmm. But the most profound point is this. The Crusaders and the Christians were overwhelmed by Salah al-Din's chivalry and virtues. But they could not, and they refused to accept that these chivalries and virtues were simply Salah al-Din trying to emulate the virtues of the Prophet and Islam. And here we have this fascinating relationship between those who came across a so-called enemy who appeared much more chivalrous than their own people. And as, as we know, in the First Crusade, when they entered Jerusalem, they massacred all the Jews and the Muslims there. Salah al-Din, when he captured Jerusalem, of course, he released everybody without any shedding of and that, and that without i don't think you mentioned in the book but of course the prophet's own entry into mecca when he was victorious over the, uh, his own city and what he did there and he explicitly invoking a prophet joseph and of course how did joseph treat his brothers who had betrayed him and sold him to the egyptians and did terrible things to him so that this this is uh, embodiment of mercy in the prophet's life is is uh, i think you're suggesting of course no salah was fully fully aware of that and don't forget, Salah al-Din's name was Yusuf, and his okay. chief propagandist played that very cleverly by using the word Yusuf and playing the word Joseph, and you know, playing that on that symbolism. He was a very clever strategic uh, figurehead as well. But mm-hmm. the point is this, he inculcated Islamic virtues and values hmm. at their best. As the enemy, as the crusaders came and met these virtues, they carried it back with them. But somehow, of course, they could not accept that mm. these virtues were Islamic. They couldn't, because if they did, then the natural thing would be then, this cannot be a false religion. You know, this has to be some truth in there. So they went through these mental acrobatic somersaults where they had to praise the man, but not praise the religion, which inspired the man. And most famously, we find that in 
Dante, of course, in the Divine Comedy, where Salah, Saladin is seen as a kind of heroic, doomed figure. Of course, he had to be doomed because he wasn't Christian, but somehow he wasn't doomed in the way because he was placed in the kind of ancient hero's virtues. Yeah. And Salah Din actually is seen in a much better light than the Prophet in that mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. But wow. of course, what but we as Muslims recognize is that, of course, the virtues of chivalry and honor which he displayed were down to his great piety and his great love of the Prophet. Mm -hmm. And this is why uh, it, we have this very interesting relationship where people say, it's not so much that he actually captured Jerusalem. And we see this later on in the book. He captured Jerusalem because he was very painstakingly, he built up alliances across Syria. We know that, you know, again, on two or three occasions, he was nearly assassinated by the famous yeah. assassins. The assassins, this kind of Ishmaeli uh, group who went around just yeah. killing and him. Mount Alamut, and they tried to go up to him because yeah. the, 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 the Latin kingdoms, yeah. of course, they recognize his danger. And very, very early on, one of the Latin historians, William of Tyre, writes about Salah al-Din when he was a young man, before his rise to power. He actually says, this man is not like the others. You cannot buy him. This man mm. is different. Mm. So very early on, they realized this man was different. And of course, Nuruddin was the same. So Salah al-Din was following Nuruddin's trail to an extent, although in a way, Salah al-Din com completes the work that Nuruddin did, which is the final capture of Jerusalem. Right. Before we get to that, can I just uh, just quote another section from your book uh, towards the chapter uh, uh, Death in Damascus, Saladin's Last Days. And you write, if one were to speak of the genius of Saladin, which one surely must, then in the words of Jackson, this is presumably a Western commentator, one would speak of, quote, the human qualities which made him loved as well as an admired leader. It was his sincerity his generosity and his magnanimity, which earned from him respect in West and East alike, coupled with his regard for fair dealing. But it was his human kindness which earned him the great personal loyalty of his immediate circle. Um, and that's from uh, yeah, a, a Western writer. Uh, I just wanted to just add, add that uh, quote as well to, to what you were saying. Um, but but coming, if I may, just as time sure. might do this, um, come back to the, the victory at the Battle of Hattin, uh, what, what that was about, and the liberation of, of Jerusalem. And then after that, perhaps looking sure. at his, what I call his nemesis, who is Richard the, the Lionheart, there's, a, there's a, a statue outside the House of Commons, not far from here, put up in the 19th century, in, in a kind of a eulogy to this great Christian, almost saintly, godly figure who, you know, uh, but th there's some terrible, terrible atrocities that uh, uh, Richard the Lionheart is well known to have committed, and we'll perhaps, unfortunately, briefly touch on those as well. But what, what did the, the, the victory at the Battle of Hattin, what was that all about, for those who don't know? Hattin was a decisive battle, um, 1187, when the, uh, which saw the sweeping away of the Latin kingdoms and all the principalities that they had captured between the First Crusade and Salah Hattin's rise, they managed to establish certain footholds along the coast of um, the Mediterranean coast, really Syria, Palestine, Lebanon. And of course, they captured and they held on to Jerusalem, which became the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. And as soon as they did that, there was a period of, you know, the Muslims getting their act together. And there was this whole counter-crusade, which is that the Muslims were determined to capture Jerusalem again. The thing about the Latin Kingdom and the battles that Salah Hattin fought, fought with them 
was that, to put it very bluntly and very succinctly, the Christian armies could not really afford to lose many battles because they were running out of men. There was this whole problem that men and money had to constantly be sent from uh, Europe. And there was these constant appeals to Europe, to the kings of France and England, that we are running out of men. The Muslims, on the other hand, once they really figured out what was happening in the threat, one hesitates to say that it was inevitable that the Muslims would eventually push the Christians out, the, the Crusaders out of Jerusalem. But of course, they were fighting on their own homeland. They were fighting, uh, they could always replenish their armies. But something, there had to be a dynamic shift for them to succeed. And that shift was the unification of Egypt and Syria and northern Iraq. It under was not Saladin. enough. Under Saladin, yeah. Under Saladin, or under, initially it was Nuruddin who tried to, of course, achieve that. Because Nuruddin managed to uh, unify Syria through Aleppo and Damascus, the two main cities of Syria. But as long as Egypt was not under their control, and that's why there were so many, so many battles fought by the uh, people like King Amalric of Jerusalem and so forth in order to break. And that's why a lot of the Crusades aimed at Egypt because they realized they had to break that pincer movement. They could not allow Egypt to become part of Syria. Yeah. And the Muslim armies had to draw their forces from northern Iraq, from Syria, and from Egypt. And if you, all these three aligned, then one can argue that the Jerusalem would fall. Hmm. Easier said than done. <laughs> it took Salah had been many, many years and yeah. as, as, as we mentioned earlier, and there were many attempts to kill him because, um, first of all, there was personal infighting. The Syrians did not want to come under Salahuddin's rule. They used to call him a, um, he turned, I mean, he was a Kurdish, uh, Nuruddin was Turkish, he was Kurdish. And they were talking, um, the Zengids, who were the followers of Nuruddin ibn Zengi, so the Zengid followers of Nuruddin, often accused Salahuddin of being a dog that barked against his master because they thought him. Everything was seen in very insular, personal, self-interested manners. This was a fragmented society, a society which is far more fragmented than today, and really one which was scattered between small principalities, between small little towns and villages and cities, and everybody controlled everything. To, to transform that, to transcend that, and to ask people to unite, to fight against somebody who came one could argue came from nowhere. He was a he was a, he was an ed in Nuruddin's camp, and he emerged. And to be able to do that through his sheer personality, and this is really the key that one needs to understand. It's only when, and it took him many many years, to unify Egypt, to get to Syria, to go up to Iraq, to campaign, to come back. Once he got these armies together, they were victorious. They were largely victorious also because the Christian armies did. <coughs> very, very strategic mis miscalculations, the famous mm -hmm. key and If you read the book, you'll see a lot of strategic tactical errors. But the fact is the Christians did not have the forces the Muslims had. The armies pushed, the armies kept pushing them, pushing them, pushing them until they finally broke them and had team. Mm -hmm. Once this happened and Jerusalem returned to the Muslims 88 years after its fall, and there's a huge celebration, of course, and there's great joy everywhere, Salah had to knew instinctively that Europe would not allow this to rest. Yeah. And exactly what happened was that the kings of France, of England, uh, sure. Germany, all came together and sent huge forces to, to, to recapture, and this was the famous Third Crusade. And no sooner had 
Salah al-Din wiped, you know, taken Jerusalem and cleaned out the coast and taken off some of the cities and again showed them an incredible mercy in his actions. Then, uh, and you know, many, many Muslims say that Salah, had Salah al-Din not shown this mercy, then perhaps the truth, you know, had he massacred a lot of the Christians then, maybe the Third Crusade would not have happened because it had shown. So maybe they interpreted Salah al-Din's mercy as a weakness. So they felt they can, you know, there's a lot of arguments that, you know, other Muslim leaders, famous ones like Baybars and people who've come later, they didn't have this mercy. They showed much more rigor in their sort of massacres. But then they wouldn't have been Salah al-Din. He's, he's, he is who he is. Yeah. And so his great nemesis, of course, uh, you, talk, you talk about the three great kings from France, Germany and England. Uh, the one that seems to have made the biggest impression historically uh, is Richard the Lionheart, who didn't spend much time in England, by the way. He seems to spend most of his life abroad. But this anyway, is, spoke French, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, and of course, he, he arrived determined. He was an incredible soldier. We have to give him credit. He was a, as a military leader, he was, he must have been incredibly charismatic, strong. And of course, what they do is they land in the north and then they, they were marching down the coast mm. uh, slowly. And Salah al-Din was, his army was marching with them, trying to stop their march as they head towards Jerusalem. So they go down the coast and then they go inland into Jerusalem. And the thing we have to remember about this is that Richard had a formidable army as a military man. He was far, you know, he's obviously more capable than Salah al-Din. Salah al-Din was not what you call a great general. He was, his qualities were elsewhere and he put people together. He was a genius and all that. But on the military ground, and of course, Richard, as, as you mentioned, alluded to earlier, um, massacred a lot of Muslims. And of course, the most famous one being the, I don't know if you want to read an excerpt from this uh, yeah. famous uh, Unfortunately, I, I, I will. Um, May on page 211 of your book you write the following on the 20th of August this is in 1191 the year 1191 <coughs> the day Richard believed he had agreed with Saladin for the payment of the first installment this is a truce they'd reached well, I'll go to the details but that's not the point of the story he ordered his army out of uh, Acre Muslim spies reported that the king of England's army was occupying the whole plain outside of Acre Acre is a a city that is day part of Israel. Richard spent the morning waiting to hear any news from the Muslim camp about the fulfillment of the terms of the agreement. But when none was forthcoming, he acted in a way which horrified the, the watching spies. The garrison of Acre, these are the, obviously the soldiers in that fortification, numbering around 3,000 people, were marched out onto the plain, roped together, men leading men, their hands bound. Then the massacre commenced. By the time night fell, so had the 3,000. So this, in today's terms, would obviously be a war crime where you cold-bloodedly execute um, prisoners of war. Um, but th this, was, uh, th th this, this was typical, unfortunately, of uh, Richard the Lionheart, uh, his great brutality to to it's almost the almost the opposite the mirror image opposite of, of Salah Hadin. Richard was, was fascinated. He was absolutely fascinated by Salah yeah. Hadin, Richard. He wanted to meet him. And one of the great myths and you know one of the great legends is that of course the two kings met. They never met. Mm. Um, although one assumes instinctively because of the books and you know films and so forth that they were they actually met. Salah Hadin refused to meet Richard. Richard mm. on many occasions asked to meet with him because um as I mentioned earlier, the chivalry. On another case, there was once when Richard fell ill with a tremendous fever. 
and Salah al-Din would send him uh, ice, sherbets, and you know things to cool his fever down. And there was a time when Richard's ambassadors came to Salah al-Din, and he actually took them around his camps to show them all the food that he sent Richard. On the one hand, you can say, look, this is a kind guy, he's a generous guy, he's a sweet guy who's helping Richard. No, Salahuddin was much wiser than that. He was showing Richard the, the power and the wealth and the strength that he had. And yeah. he told Richard, he told him, and he was very clever, he wrote him a letter. Saying, yeah, why, sorry, why wouldn't he meet Richard the Lionheart? I mean, the whole history has fantasized about this meeting that never actually took place. But why, why did he not want to meet him? What was the logic? What was the reasoning in, in Salahuddin's mind? Because there would have been a reason... I mean, you, you constantly emphasize in your book how reflective, cautious this is the word you use. Yeah. You know, he didn't rush into things, Salah didn't rush into things usually. So he would have had a reason why he didn't want to meet um, Richard the Lionheart. What, would you, any ideas what that might have been? Uh, he mentions it himself. He actually writes to Richard and says to him that it's not befitting for kings to meet and then wage war. So I will meet you once we finally reach a final settlement. He did not, but he was. He, he sent him his brother, who was uh, who represented Salah al-Din and many. And there was this remarkable incident where Richard once proposed the marriage of uh, between Salah al-Din's brother and Richard's um, sister, I believe. And it, of wow. course, was going to happen. But uh, why did Salah al-Din not meet him? I think, to a large extent, the Western obsession with the Crusades elevated Richard's position. I don't think Salah al-Din perhaps viewed Richard in the same equal way as perhaps we see him today. He must have seen him as just an enemy who was encroaching upon Muslim land. Sahadin was older than him. He was tired. He was falling ill at that point. Mm. And he had absolutely no desire to meet him. I think there's a kind of obsession of wanting to meet Salahuddin with him. But the point I'd like to raise about this incredible, almost, you know, extremely dramatic couple of years of the march down the coast and the incredible mm. war of attrition that took place between <laughs> If we were to judge Salah al-Din's greatness, and this is something I came to realize when I spent years researching and writing the book, it's not that he captured Jerusalem. His greatness was in how he defended Jerusalem. He knew that his capture of Jerusalem would unleash forces that he could not handle because the Muslim army, again, was a seasonal army. These were people who went off and did their farming and then came to fight for the season. And he had to call on every year, they had to call on the army and troops to come from Iraq, from Syria, from Egypt, from Yemen, and they would all gather to fight. Now, he knew the threat of the Crusades and Richard, that this army had to remain in field mm, mm. for an extremely long period, as long as the threat was there. The Muslims who were set, and he also knew that he actually, there was a point where he used up almost all his money. He was so generous. His treasury was running dry because of his generosity and the way he was actually having to fight this war, which continued to fight, it never stopped. This was like a very, very bloody war of attrition. You just mentioned the 3,000 killed. This was unfortunately a drop in an ocean of blood which took place. It was a terrible time. What Salah Hadim knew was that he could not force the other Muslims' armies to come to his help. Mm. He could not ask, he could ask Baghdad or Mosul to send troops. He could ask, Egypt sent troops, but he, he no longer had the men to actually force people to send troops. His lieutenants, his commanders, his you know, there, people. There was no, in, in short, in today's terms, there was no conscript army where you had a professional full-time paid army that just did art that, that would do what soldiers do. These were farmers who, in a seasonal way, you know, the winter, they went back to their farms because you didn't fight in the wintertime. 
you, you fought in the spring or summer or autumn, whatever. So as, as you say, it was a voluntary. His, yes. It was his magnet. It was the man himself, Saladin, who, who, who earned the loyalty of all these people and held together this extraordinary yes. empire. I think this is this is the genius of Saladin. That mm. The lands were owned by lords. He gave out lands to lords, and in return, they had to send in troops, of course. But he could physically force them to do that. There was a point where he was so weak because Richard was literally wearing him down each battle, and Saladin was losing ground all the time as he, as the armies moved south towards Jerusalem. Mm. And the people who hated Saladin, the Muslims who hated Saladin, and don't forget there were many who really, you know, who envied his position, who found him as an upstart, again, the Kurdish-Turkish thing, they really did not want to be with Saladin. Mm -hmm. And his moment of weakness, when they could have turned against him, did not turn against him. Right. They sent troops. Right. The question is why? Yes. It's because he possessed a quality, a vision, yeah. a transcendental, he transcended the kind of petty squabbling that took place. And we have this really very moving and poetic scene where after several defeats, Saladin Richard is turning into Jerusalem. And at that point, the Muslim army could no longer stand against Jerusalem. Richard was far too powerful. And he was pushing them back and back and back, the Battle of Arsuf and many other skirmishes. Um, and it was only a matter of time before Richard would capture Jerusalem. And at that point, Salah Adin had a choice to make. He was being... He could choose to retire, retreat, and retire back to Egypt, knowing that in Egypt he was safe because there's no way Richard's line of supplies would reach him all the way to Egypt. So he could have said, I'm going to go back to Egypt, become the Sultan of Egypt, build my troops, and come back and fight. Of course, he chose not to because he knew if he did that, then Jerusalem would definitely fall. Mm. So what he did is, of course, he burned, as we know, the famous Ascalan, which is the main fortress, a city which protected uh, you know, Palestine and the entrance to Egypt. He burned down the walls to make sure that Richard could not capture it. And with a few men, he retreated and retired to Jerusalem, where they lived to poison the wells, right. build on their fortifications. It was bitter winter. And with a few loyal lieutenants that remained with him, many people had left him by that point. He, decided, he said to them, I will not leave Jerusalem. Mm. I will fight to the death. And this is beautiful scene described by one of his companions, Sidney Shaddad, where he's sitting in this whole room, room uh, hallway, hall in, uh, in Jerusalem. And around him were several men. And they're all sitting there in complete tranquility and silence. And there was nobody was moving. Mm. And Shaddad describes it. They were so still as if birds could perch on their heads. Yes, yes. And each man was lost in their thoughts. And then Salah Hadin speaks to them and says, I will not leave Jerusalem. I will fight and I will die here. I will not give up the city to Richard. And what is fascinating is the people around him, and then one of the people next to him stands up and speaks. And this man had been one of Salah Hadin's bitterest enemies and rivals. He had vied with him for the vizierate back in Egypt many years earlier. And he said to him, and so it shows you that Salah Adin managed to retain their loyalty, yeah. not through force of arms, <laughs> nor through money. He no longer had any money. His treasury was almost running empty. His advisor, his greatest companion and friend, Al-Qadi Al-Fadl, often would not tell him the truth of how much money he had because he knew if he told him, Salah Adin would spend it on. He was so generous. He was just giving it away. And as we all know, famously, he died penniless, Salah Adin. Mm. I mean, the parallel in the life of the prophet upon peace, upon peace, I mean, it might be obvious to everyone, but it struck me a renewed force there. The prophet himself died 
penniless, mm-hmm. so he, he wasn't a warlord who accrued great wealth. Um, also, the, the sheer magnetism of the prophet himself, um, even the most difficult times, without going into the details of the seer, mm-hmm. of course, when you know that the forces were threatening to split everyone apart, no, people remained with the prophet because of, of, of the man himself, the loyalty to the man transcended these divisions and these forces that were pulling everyone apart. There is a parallel between what you think about Khandaq and, you know, the Medina and of course the Jerusalem and Salah al-Din on a much yeah. less, of course you can't compare them, different levels, but for sure at the end Salah al-Din when he had no men around him, when all his loyal people had left him, when he had no money and he was surrounded by people who he could not pay to remain with him. They remained with him. And Richard was just about to capture Jerusalem. Mm. But of course he didn't capture Jerusalem. And Maybe. many things happened. And Jerusalem remained Muslim for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. And But he took it out of Salah al-Din. He didn't live much longer after that. He died as a recently young man. He was in his 50s when he died. If I was something. So yeah. 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 Imagine the pressure that he was under oh, to sure. keep the Muslim world united. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, he died um, penniless. Yeah. And um, but he left an incredible legacy, not just in his honor and chivalry and virtues that we've talked about, not just in the um, military exploits that we've spoken about and reflected, as you say, in Kingdom of Heaven and the famous Jerusalem battles and the chivalry he showed afterwards and the mercy he showed afterwards. But I think what my book explores, which is perhaps less dramatic, but I think as profound in the legacy that he continued in reviving and helping the Sunni ideology, Sunni orthodoxy, to take root. He was a very, very loyal... It was an, inc- an exclusivist orthodoxy, as we've already said. It was one that actually extended the bounds to include moderate uh, Shia views as well. So it, it was Shia, quite a general... many, many of the Shia, of course, there are many, many Shias <laughs> who fought against the Crusades. And I think this is the... One needs to understand that. And, you know... In the final say, we're talking about a man who died 900 years ago, and yet today, and it actually, you know, I don't, I want to touch just briefly on the modern world because I think it's important. Yeah, so that was the final point actually, is to touch on, on how he is remembered, the the symbolism, the myth, the hero. You know, has it completely gone beyond the the, the real historical man that you've written so um, eloquently about, or is there still some real connection there? Do you think? I think, I think, of course, the man became a legend, and. Um, I can tell you things which perhaps may surprise people that the famous tomb of Saladin, the mausoleum of Saladin that one finds in Damascus was actually uh, restored and renovated by Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. So this again reflects the respect they had for him. Now it's fascinating today when you come across the name Salah al-Din and you look at the number of people Every time you can you can sit there and talk to people and you know the state of the Muslim world and the Arab world today, and I really do not like to compare the past with the present because it's historically and academically disingenuous. But often you hear people sit around and say, Oh, what we need is another Salahuddin. And what I find fascinating about that statement is they don't need to explain what they mean by it, because the symbolism is greater than the truth. What we need is another Salahuddin is what? Do they mean we need somebody to come and capture Jerusalem again? Or do they mean we need somebody to come with his virtues and chivalry and um, to show us how great Islam is? To a large extent, one can argue that how far are we abrogating our responsibilities by arguing that we need another Salah al-Din, maybe we should get off our backsides and actually 
you know, get on with it because, you know, one, no one man's going to help us. But it also betrays a certain ignorance, which is that, as I said, the age of Salah al-Din was, the greatness was in the age. Now, of course, Salah al-Din was a jewel in this age, and, you know, and they followed him like a star. But these were also great, great men who followed him. What I find worrying about the modern world in which we live in today and the modern discourse in Salah al-Din was a very, is a recent trend which has been emerging, unfortunately, in the Arab world. And here I talk about Egypt because I only know Egypt, but I'm sure it's happened elsewhere. Where that you're now getting a lot of, I wouldn't call them intellectuals, pseudo-intellectuals emerging on mainstream media and openly criticizing uh, Saladin. In Egypt, there's a, there's a man called Yusuf Zidane who, came, who, who on several occasions has spoken about it. He's a writer who worked in Library of Alexandria and who has really made a career out of being controversial. And recently, or a few years ago, and he's just repeated it recently, he described Saladin as being one of the most despicable people in history. Gosh. Not, not Pol Pot, not Stalin, not Mao, Saladin. And of course, he goes through some very, 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 you know, very, very silly reasons why he argues that, which have no historical bearing at all. But what I found fascinating is that there is a kind of attempt I don't know how orchestrated it is. I don't think it is. I think it's just, you know, perhaps people trying to be controversial mm. to knock down our heroes. So actually, the you know, Saladin who... And so here we're talking about a debate which is taking place nine years <coughs> after his death. The Saladin that we're talking about today, whether he really was a despicable character or whether he was a great hero who's going to come and soothe our ailments, has nothing to do with the historical Saladin on which I wrote my book. Mm. This was a Kurdish warlord who, who you know, lived between Syria and Egypt and fought battles and you know had children and built madrasas and he was a historical figure with many weaknesses and many many qualities. Over the centuries, and largely because of 19th century and colonialism, the figure of Saladin has emerged again as being a symbol of resistance, of um, chivalry, of right. honor, a sense of pride, and I think it is. Um, mm. It needs deeper thinking. It needs deeper thinking because on the one hand, the legend is so far away from the reality and because ultimately I think the reality is far more interesting than legend because of the less exciting issues we've spoken about, the madrasas and the education. Yeah, you mentioned the men, the geniuses that were sur surrounded, uh, Salah Hadin, you mentioned two or three other people. It wasn't just a solitary man who did amazing things. It, it, he was part of what we used to say was a team. He was part of a group of people. Um, so it wasn't a solitary victory by any means, although his, his influence uh, and personal contribution was uh, irreplaceable. But it's a sense of the complexity and the nexus and the, the web of relations and what was going on. That he and, in that, and in that web, and I mentioned Abdelkata Jilani, I've mentioned incredible geniuses yeah. who live yeah. there. But the web, what held the web together was the madrasas and the channels of communication that allowed these people mm -hmm. to travel from Baghdad to Egypt, back to Syria. And, you know, when you trace the movement of these people, um, without that infrastructure of madrasas, then I don't think these channels of communication could have been uh, cemented in a way which actually came mm. to Saladin's aid. Because as more and more people were educated in madrasas, they came to support him, often to push him. And on many occasions, Saladin himself, you know, made mistakes and these people around him said, no, no, this is not the way to do it. Yeah. So it was a much greater cause and it's an, it an incredible age of, of, of dozens, if not hundreds, of incredible people. 
And of course, Salah al-Din was the star of it. We have to accept that. And one accepts that with great humility and love and respect for the man. But the idea that Salah al-Din is always taken out of this context yeah. and turned into this myth and legend tells you actually, so when we say that the, the Muslim world needs another Salah al-Din, no, what the Muslim world needs is another revival in education in learning in orthodoxy, which will then, from which a new generation will emerge and from that generation, maybe Salah al-Din will emerge if we're fortunate. Wow. But that, of course, is the more painstaking, less exciting, more boring path towards, you know, orthodoxy, which uh, people don't have the time for anymore. No, that, that's a very intelligent response and a very salutary uh, one. But people need heroes, perhaps. Um, we, we need figures who yeah. symbolize, you know, liberation, freedom from occupation. You know, the parts of the Muslim world are still under occupation, of course, now. So the parallels are there and, and people will clutch to personalities even though as you say as you show very well in your book it, 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 there was a very complex web of individuals and social and political factors at play um but I have to just finally um I mean we've been talking now for an hour and this has been absolutely fascinating and I'm very grateful that you've shared your expertise on this remarkable man and his his context um in your more your most recent book the other exile because uh, this is your book that was recently published a different subject, but I, I thought I just wanted to uh, ask you to tell us about that book. Nothing to do with Saladin, so no. we'll be that. Um, but I think it's just worth it if you could just share why you've written this book it's, and what's it. Um, it's a book that I've absolutely loved writing, and it's a character that is absolutely incredible. Very briefly, hmm. I was reading about Napoleon Bonaparte, and as we know, there's a new film coming out on Napoleon. Yeah. A few years ago, I was reading about yeah, Napoleon Bonaparte. Again, this dude, Ridley Scott, who's just produced another... Yes, it seems to be the connection between everything, we, you know, I do. Is, um, after all. <laughs> okay. And, I, you know, as we know, um, I was exiled after the Waterloo, 1815, and he spent seven years in the island of St. Helena, which is the most obscure uh, island in the South Atlantic Ocean. And I was reading about Napoleon um, a few years ago. There was a very strange and odd reference that came up. And they said that 300 years before Napoleon, so in 1500 and something, there lived on the island in total isolation for 30 years, a Portuguese Muslim. Hmm. And that's all. That's the only reference there was. And that immediately stopped my tracks. I said, first of all, how could somebody live on an island which is so remote, totally remote, I mean, Napoleon was, the British chose St. Helena because there was no need to build a fortress, a prison. Exactly. And there were no Portuguese Muslims in the 15th, you know, who was this man? And I slowly, through lots of research in Lisbon, uncovered the incredible story of a Portuguese Muslim called Fernão Lopez. And he was the first inhabitant of the island of St. Helena, which was a Portuguese discovery in 1502. He lived on the island literally as the first almost a Robinson Crusoe figure. Hmm. Astonishingly, he was a Muslim. Even more astonishingly than that, as I found out, he was actually born Jewish, was forced to become a Catholic by the King Manuel of Portugal, as you know, we mentioned earlier, the pre-Inquisition yeah. period. Yeah. Goes off to Goa at the time of Vasco da Gama and the great Portuguese Age of Discovery, so 1480s, 1490s. Goes to Goa and promptly becomes a Muslim and becomes what was known and there were very many of them, but though today we don't hear much about them, they were absolutely well-known. Renegados, he was a renegade. These were people who became Muslim and fought for the Muslims. And he rose to a position of great leadership under the Sultan of Bijapur in Goa, and he fought against the Portuguese. 
until he was arrested. And because he was a noble man, he wasn't put to death. But the famous uh, vice general, the viceroy of India at that time was a man called Alfonso de Albuquerque, who was a very famous Portuguese, decided to teach him a lesson. And they inflicted upon him severe torture. They chopped off his, uh, his, his hand, his thumb, his ears, his nose. And they disgraced him because the worst thing for the, you know, the Portuguese Catholic emergency of King Manuel, don't forget this was the age of Isabel and Ferdinand and the real, you know, the turning, the end of the Reconquista, was how could the Portuguese Muslim, uh, the nobleman become Muslim? And this was a man who was Jewish initially. He was a new Christian and he became Muslim. And then the king forgave him and on his way back, he jumped ship and instead of going back to Lisbon, he ended up living for 30 years in total isolation on the island of St. Helena, where he did amazing things. He grew plants, he flourished, he became known as the hermit of uh, the island. And eventually the king of Portugal, Joao III, uh, Manuel's son, said, I'd like to meet this man. Who is this man? So it's an adventure story. It's a true story. It's absolutely one. I mean, as you know, as a, true stories tend to be far more dramatic than you know fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a character who was, and so it explores the identity of Islam in Portugal, of Muslims. It explores the identity of Jews and Christians at that time, and how, as you mentioned earlier, the Inquisition came and crushed any diversity, uh, and imposed upon Europe. Unfortunately. Um, through a lot of blood and through Inquisition, a kind of uniformity of Catholic Catholicism, which was very, very strict in its... <clears throat> yeah. So it's a glimpse of another world, of this remarkable man who literally lived on an island, who, did, who chose to be a hermit, who was a Muslim at a time when there were no Muslims in Portugal. And the book has done very well. It came out in Portuguese and in English and Turkish and many languages, Arabic. Will there be a film? Will Ridley Scott do a film? <laughs> He's an incredible character. It surprise me, by the way. Every time, every time I speak to people on the island, everyone says, oh, Napoleon. I say, oh, Napoleon spent his time in St. Helena lamenting his fate and wailing. You know, he's a Corsican who's just, you know, and he kept going on about it. Um, but in fact, the first inhabitant of the island was a man who deeply loved St. Helena, and he actually planted it with plants, and he... He used to feed the sailors who would come. He never left it. Well, he left it. He, he went and came back, and he, he died on the island. So it's an absolutely unknown story. He's become very famous in Portugal, thanks to my books. It come out um, did very well in Portuguese. And um, maybe one day we can sit and have a chat about the idea of Islam in Europe and how different it was at the time when yeah. perhaps now, unfortunately, we're, we're reading it post-Inquisition. But pre-Inquisition... Yes. The relationship between Islam and Europe was a much more complex, nuanced one, as, as we know. Gosh. Well, that's uh, what's the full title of the book, The Other Exile? The Other Exile, The Remarkable Story of uh, Fernando Lopez. Uh, I can't remember the title. And A Paradise Lost or something like that. It's, uh, it's about the island of St. Helena. It's called The Other Exile. And right. it's available. Well, it's available. So I'll put a link to that book and uh, a call to uh, this book, which uh, I've read and I do recommend highly as well, uh, in the description. Uh, below. So, <clears throat> excuse me, thank you very much indeed, Dr. Abdurrahman. My pleasure. I hope we, we covered a lot and I hope, you know, I managed to explain some of Saladin's genius and I hope that people who talk about him are now intrigued and want to read really yes. in detail his life. It's, I yes. think we, we owe yes. it to him. He was a Those who watched the film and seen the video can now go and read. Yeah, I have problems with the Kingdom of Heaven, but that's another story, you know, Orlando Bloom and all that. <laughs> 
I knew you'd say that, but uh, um, no, it, it was it was heavily fictionalized account. Absolutely. Well, it served the purpose. It served the purpose. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much, indeed, uh, your time. Really appreciate it. Thank next. You. Thank you. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.